0: Morning all, so we've been thinking about the theme of uh, being known by God together this week Um, I'm conscious that uh, some of you didn't make it to the first two so a quick uh, recap Uh, on Tuesday we thought about the fact that uh, when we feel insignificant uh, we can remember that the Lord knows our name just as he knew Mary's name in John 20 and uh, uh, wiped the tears from her eyes And then yesterday we looked at the fact that uh, being known by God brings us comfort in that our lives are recorded uh, before God, uh, our King. A scroll of remembrance is written uh, in Malachi 3. And today we're wondering about whether being known by God affects our conduct. And uh, we're looking at Colossians 3 and specifically the notion that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And that very uh, intriguing phrase... Christ is our life. Um, just to kick off, I thought I'd uh, think about that one piece of advice that you hear everywhere today in all sorts of contexts. Uh, if you want to get a standing ovation on Ellen or on uh, some rerun of uh, Oprah, all you've got to do is say this and it'll bring everyone to their feet. It turns up in uh, school captains' speeches, celebrity interviews, children's books, highbrow literature, philosophical discussions of ethical dilemmas, and to disagree with it is almost unthinkable. And most people think it's the best advice you can give. It's this, be true to yourself. Yep, be true to yourself. Act in accordance with who you really are. And its appealing corollaries are things like follow your heart, Think for yourself, resist external pressures, stand out from the crowd, be authentic. Um, Personal autonomy is kind of at the heart of it. Each of us are individuals and uh, we need to find our identity as individuals and express that. So in everything from um, discussions about bioethics, sexual ethics, assisted dying, really comes down to this, uh, your personal autonomy and whether the behavior is true to yourself. It's one of those motherhood words, authenticity, that's uh, in there as well. And it's very difficult to disagree with. It's kind of like community, family, natural, organic, reformed, evangelical. I mean, you just can't disagree with it um, without getting in trouble. And psychologists, has to be said, recommend it. It's uh, something that, uh, authenticity, that is, that's good for your well-being, along with self-esteem, vitality, and so on acting in accordance with your core self, it's certainly hard to disagree with, I mean the opposite is to act like a phony I suppose, or a fake, and uh, it's a more honest and open way of living um, that uh, um, doesn't rely on the opinion of others as to how you're going to live. So it's hard to speak against, but here goes. Um, <laughs> despite its currency and widespread popularity, I think that we do have to dampen our enthusiasm or at least qualify um, the question answer to the question, should you be true to yourself? The problem is that the appeal to authenticity can just be an excuse for questionable behaviour. If um, I do something that's inconsiderate of, of others or even harmful to myself, I can just say, well, I'm, I'm being true to myself. What business is it of yours? Uh, virtues like patience, kindness, faithfulness can take a, uh, a backseat compared with um, following your heart. And the real question is, what if my self is selfish? Uh, the abusive spouse, the dishonest friend, the greedy workaholic, the malicious gossip can all claim to be true to themselves uh, when they're behaving in character. The problem with being true to yourself is that very often the self abuses the privilege and taking authenticity as the sole or chief criterion for conduct uh, can uh, raise significant concerns. It can be an excuse for a sort of shallow and destructive narcissism. It ignores the fact that we're connected to each other, that uh, we're social beings and our relationships can become disposable as they get uh, uh, run over by self-expression. Uh, Charles Taylor, who's written about this kind of thing, uh, a philosopher from Canada, writes, I can define my identity only against the background of things that matter. To bracket out history, nature, society, the demands of solidarity, eliminates all the candidates for what matters. And then we mustn't forget, of course, Jesus' famous words, out of the heart, should you follow your heart, well... Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, uh, false testimony, slander. Uh, Following your heart can sometimes be a bad idea. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11.5 puts it well. Tell young people to follow the ways of your heart. Sounds good, doesn't it? The end of the verse says, know that for all these things, the Lord will bring you into judgment. (laughs) So perhaps the biggest problem though, with thinking that you should be true to yourself is that it's a bit naive because it's true that who you are affects how you behave, but how you behave will also affect who you are. So C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you into something a little different from what it was before. So authenticity is a two way street. We act out of our identity and our repeated acts will change our identity. So friends, does the Bible espouse the ideal of authenticity for believers? Should you be true to yourself? Well, I think to unpack that, there are two questions really. The first one is, what is the self? What's a self? The word self was actually used in our passage, but I'll explain in a few moments why it's a bad translation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second one is, we'll get to the the big idea, should you true to yourself? And both questions, I think, are answered very well in Colossians 3. Well, what is a self? What is your self? Uh, Richard Baucom says that there are two sides to the self. He says, the self is a unique and particular center of personal identity that can be characterized as relational and narratival. Now, stick with me here. So, relational and narratival, what does he mean? Well, um, uh, where is it? It's relational in that it's formed in personal relationships. So you are who you are because of the relationships around you. And it's narratival in that it's formed in and through time and finds a unique identity in a story both past, present and expected future. So there are two things. There's a relational self, you're a social being, and there's a narrativeal self, you are your story. So first of all, the relational self. The self understood as an autonomous individual really doesn't exist. And there was a newspaper article some years ago uh, where a a man uh, lived a life of a genuine hermit, had no contact with anyone. And in the end, one of the lines he said when he was finally interviewed 40 years later was, my identity just slipped away. As much as our hyper-individualistic age might see personal identity as a do-it-yourself project, the truth is people come to know themselves by being known by other people. And I was thinking about this with uh, looking in the mirror uh, recently. So all I get to see is this, okay? The straight on me. Then I go and try and close in a, a department store or in a clothes shop and I go into the Uh, room to put them on and they often have mirrors all around you and I kind of look and think who is that oh goodness gracious and but you see me better than I see myself and I think there's some uh, truth to that that we get to know ourselves by being known by others and as our theme has shown this week the most important relationship in this space is the fact that we are known by God as Galatians 4 Paul says to the Galatians, at one time you didn't know God, now you do know God, or rather, you're known by God. At the final judgment, Jesus will say, as it says in the Synoptic Gospels, I never knew you to those who are condemned. So at the core of our identity is this idea of being known by God. And it's in our passage, not in those words, but have a look at Colossians 3. It says, uh, your life, in verse 3, your life, we could say yourself, is now hidden with christ in god so we're all like superman really we have a secret identity which is our true identity and it's hidden and as one john put it it'll be revealed when jesus is revealed all of us are sons of god or or sons and daughters children of god now the second idea is this narratival self. You are your story. So our life stories, all their ups and downs, play a vital role in forming who we are. It's not just experiences in a person's own lifetime that forge their identity. I met a friend at church who uh, had serious uh, anxiety and other issues because his parents had uh, been persecuted in the Holocaust. He had nothing to do with it personally, But because of that family history, it had profoundly affected him in the present. Sometimes national histories play a big role, family histories, and things in the past before you were born can forge your identity, those defining moments of your life. Uh, Sunday morning I have a routine, Uh, I have a shower, I have a shower most days. But uh, Sunday morning in particular I have a shower, and then I go through and get dressed um, and turn the radio on. And I don't know why, but it's exactly the time that uh, there's a program on the ABC radio called The Year That Made Me. Anyone else ever listened to The Year That Made Me? Goodness gracious. Okay. <laughs> I recommend it. So it's, uh, it's this idea, that define, they, they interview someone, usually a famous person, about the defining moment of their lives. What was the big moment, the year that made you who you are today? and uh, fed through to how you behave and uh, the kind of conduct you have today. So Lisa McCune, who's an actress, said it was the year that she gave birth to her first child, 2001. That changed her forever. Tim Winton, the uh, the famous West Australian novelist, uh, his was in 1978 when he was involved in a horrible car crash. And that kind of woke him up and changed the way, his whole direction of life changed through that car crash. So sometimes it's, it's not a nice thing that defines your identity. Um, Alison Lester, a children's author, it was 2006 when she got pneumonia. Uh, Jeff Kennett, former Victorian Premier, it was when he was conscripted into the army. Uh, Akmal Saleh, the comedian. Uh, the year that he was, uh, sorry, it was 78 when his father died, suddenly. And Chris Judd, uh, can you guess? It's the year he won the first Brownlow medal. So the sports people are the least interesting (laughs) on, on these kind of questions. Now, our passage has this same idea and it's one we'll come to in a few minutes time when we come to the Lord's Supper, of course. And it's this idea that Christ is our life story. It's a very odd idea, really. Someone else, the experiences, the fact that Jesus died and rose, is more important for my identity than anything that will happen in my lifetime. There are important things that happen in my life and they affect myself, my identity, but the really core thing, the secret identity, the true me, was forged when Jesus died and rose. Have a look. Verse 1 You have been raised with Christ. So when Christ rose, that was with you. Christ didn't just die as your substitute, as your representative. Uh, where Christ, uh, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Not in my lifetime, talking about I died with Christ. Your life yourself is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, you can almost say your life story, dying, rising, dying to sin, rising to new life appears, you will appear with him in glory, and finally, it will be clear who you really are. So we have the shared memory together, friends, which we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper, that we died with Christ, and we have a defining destiny, that we will appear with him in glory. Okay, the second question, should you be true to yourself? Well, the... Uh, Uh, the New Testament, does recommend being true to yourself, true to your true self as someone known by God whose life is hidden with Christ in God. And as children of God, we're included in God's story and we tell Christ's story as our own story. We reckon ourselves dead to sin and self-interest and seek to live in the light of sharing his glorious future. And Paul's teaching in this beautiful passage in Colossians that was read, has three ways of saying that you should be true to your new self or true to yourself living, living in accordance with your true self so to be true to yourself you have to dress appropriately sounds odd but that's what the passage says it says it several times verses 9 and 10 it says you've taken off your old self and uh, verse 10 you've put on new clothing and then down in verses 12 Uh, It says, uh, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. This this lovely metaphor of being undressed and then clothed. You might think there's some significance to how people dress in a church context reading this. And then over all these things, put on love, take certain things off, put other things on. A tradesman wears overalls, not black tie. A firefighter, turnout gear, not shorts and t-shirt. A judge, wig and robes, not smart, casual. And in the same way, a child of God must take off the garb of the old self and instead put on love. So you want to know what the Christian life is about? It's about knowing who you are and dressing appropriately. You need to know how to dress. When a Christian behaves immorally, with slander, malice, etc., as we see in this passage. The problem is they've forgotten who they are. And they're not behaving in accordance with their new identity. And uh, verse 11 makes it clear that really the the self-language that we see in verses 9 and 10, take off the old self, put on the new self, is a bit ambiguous because it's not an individual idea. It's a corporate idea. We put on Christ as uh, uh, Paul says in other passages. And we take off the old self, which is really the old man. It's Anthropos in Greek, if you're into that kind of thing. And uh, what Paul's saying is the lifestyle associated with the first humanity, Adam, where to put off, and the lifestyle associated with the new Adam, Christ, where to put on. The reason you, it's definitely corporate is clear in verse 11. He says, here in the new man or new person, new humanity or in the new self, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So it's, I don't know about you, but my, um, myself never had a circumcised or uncircumcised, there's no barbarian or Scythian in there. So he's talking about a corporate thing, isn't he? So all of us in one sense have the same identity, as odd as that might sound. Um, A second way to be true to yourself is, um, oh, I've just gone on and done it, is to put off the old self and to put on the new. And then the third way to be true to yourself is to be renewed, as it says in verse 10, in knowledge and in the image of God. Be renewed. The new humanity is to be renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. So our growth in knowledge is both the goal and means of this renewal and its knowledge of God and of Christ and of ourselves in Christ, hidden with God in Christ. So we are those whose true identities are hidden with Christ in God and renewal into the image of God is the outcome of this process. And it's no accident that Paul says in one fifteen of this letter that Christ is the image of God. So the image of God, which was um, sullied and damaged through Adam's sin and us following in his train, is renewed in Christ. So in Colossians 3, we see that our new identity as those who died and rose with Christ and our lives hidden with him give us moral direction and there's a conduct attached to this new identity. But the focus is not just on our present identity, it's not that you're to be true to yourself as you are now. There are three forms of Christian self-expression, if you like, where to be who we will be in Christ. So the future, where to think of ourselves as those who died and risen with Christ and will appear with him in glory and therefore behave in a Christ-like manner now. Where to think too of the past, uh, we're to be who we were intended to be, who Adam was intended to be, as members of the new humanity, renewed in the image of God. We're to rid ourselves of anger and lies and so on. And we are in, to be true to ourselves in the present as well. So be who, we, who you are in Christ, as verses 12 to 14 say, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved now, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. You see the consistency between the identity and the behavior. Now, we're social beings known by God, we're narratival beings, Uh, we are our stories and our story is at uh, bottom level, connected with the story of Christ. Sometimes people talk of life stories as having defining moments, like the year that made me, and signature moves. Did you ever hear that language when they talk about uh, different people? So a defining moment is that point at which the essential character of a person is established. It's that identity forming event. It's who you become that then flows into your behaviour. It can be an achievement or a failure, something you do or something's done to you, something in your history. And then the signature move is that which sums up and expresses that identity. Its performance distills the character of that person. It's when that person does something and you say to yourself, that's just so Frank. Yep, that's just so like Frank that he would say or do that. And uh, if you knew Frank's history, maybe you could work out how he ended up like that. So authenticity is really living in accordance with your defining moment and then performing your signature move. Now, I've got a bunch of examples, most of which were before you were born, so I'm a bit worried about this, but we'll (laughs) go anyway. So the defining moment of those people, to give you a corporate example, who grew up in the Depression was that experience of poverty. And their signature move is kind of frugality. If you've ever known someone like that, that was just typical of them. Every day, they would act in a certain way because of that, that experience they had in the Great Depression. There was a Great Depression back there, if, for those of you who didn't know. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, his defining moment was his part in the 1930 Salt March, which was a non-violent pro- protest against the British salt monopoly in India. And then his signature move became passive resistance. And that's what characterised him. When he, when he stood there and was beaten in the protests, people said, that oh, that's just so Mahatma Gandhi. Well, maybe not, but that's the kind of thing you could have said. Muhammad Ali, his defining moment, well, he had several, but he was win- the one I'm thinking of he, uh, was when he retook the world heavyweight boxing title against George Foreman in, in 1974 in Zaire, the Rumble in the Jungle, and uh, his, uh, if you know about that, the rope-a-dope, his signature move was uh, the kind of um, floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. Margaret Thatcher's defining moment was her response to the Falkland crisis, just look it up and uh, (laughs) her signature move was uh, this kind of expression of courageous fortitude. This woman is not for turning, she told Ronald Reagan. Uh, Nelson Mandela, his defining moment was his unjust 27-year imprisonment on Robben Island and perhaps surprisingly his signature move was his posture of forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, Marilyn Monroe's defining moment was singing Happy Birthday to President John F. Kennedy, uh, maybe. Accordingly, her signature move was attention-grabbing actions and performances. Kim Kardashian, no we're not going to go there. (laughs) So friends, I ask you, what defined you? What events in your life define you? And what signature moves express your character and identity? That just reflecting personally, my upbringing in working class Sydney, my father's Austrian heritage, becoming a father, uh, the opportunity uh, of a a Cambridge university education, all those things probably left their mark on me. And some of the consequences of those defining moments would be uh, my fondness for relating to people of all backgrounds, my taste uh, for wiener schnitzel and apple strudel, uh, my enjoyment of the odd game of chess, my fondness for dad jokes, my love of learning. So you can see these, these events flow through, don't they? But in the deepest sense, the core identity of believers who are known by God as his children, who are in union with Christ, whose life is the story of Christ, brings its own defining moment and signature moves. According to Colossians 3, the defining moment of all of believers in Christ is something that happened 2000 years ago. We died and rose with Christ and now we live in union with him. Our moment of truth happened 2000 years ago, that memory which defines us forever. It changes everything. We would not be who we are today if it were not for the death and resurrection of Christ and our signature move grows out of that identity and it is of course the act of love. Have a look verse 14, over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in unity. So just as our identity as children of God was forged through an act of amazing love, God so loved the world, So, we are to live lives of costly, selfless, other-centred love. That's when people should say, oh, that's so Brian, I only wish. But that's what we want, isn't it? We want that consistency between our defining moment and our signature move then becomes one of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of kindness, of putting on love. Um, At some point in the future, you might uh, get a phone call from the ABC and they'll say uh, we're looking for uh, new guests on the year that made me. You need to say, I'm up for it. Yep, And uh, make sure you give the right answer. The year that made you was AD 33. My name is Jess, and I'm going to be leading us in intercession this morning. Um, at Ridley, we always do, uh, we can have two focuses in our intercession.